going to in, invite once again uh, Ken Eidelman. Ken and his wife Kayleen have been visiting with us for the weekend. Uh, if you were uh, privileged to be a part of the marriage conference this weekend, then you've already gleaned from their wisdom and their um, their experience with the Lord that they were so happy to share with us as a family. Uh, if you have not heard uh, Ken speak already, then you're in for a treat. He has a heart for the Lord and a heart for his people and for his church. And um, Ken has a, a great history in teaching and leading uh, churches as well as uh, Bible colleges and, and, um, and other leaders as well into a, a life that is obedient and journeying with the Christ. So Ken, I want to invite you once again. Thank you. Well, Pastor Jeff, I want to thank you and the worship team this morning for really uh, leading us into the presence of the Lord and prompting our worship and what a delight it has been for Kayleen and me to be with you during these last several hours and to uh, share in the marriage retreat and now in uh, our worship time this morning together. A Partnership Christian Church is a new church to me and my guess is for most of you here you're seeing me and hearing me for the first time now. Uh, we have a son who is an author who's written about seven uh, best-selling Christian books and uh, is a fairly well-known pastor in Louisville, Kentucky. I, I am not Kyle Eidelman, I'm Ken Eidelman. Now, sometimes when I go out in the churches, people confuse us and they'll come up to me and say, I just want to thank you for the books that you've written that have just uh, really meant so much to our family or our church. And I used to correct them and uh, say, well, that's not me, that's my son. I don't do that anymore. I just say, well, thank you. Thank you <laughs> so much. I do remind people, though, from time to time that he is the copy. I'm the original, you know, so. <laughs> well, this morning I want to speak to you about what's on the front of your bulletin this morning. I want to speak to you about the Maximum Impact Church. The Maximum Impact Church doesn't have anything to do with the size of the church or the location of the church or the operating budget of the church. The Maximum Impact Church can be a church of any size, located anywhere. And often, depending on where it is in the, the country, it may operate in one or another economy. The Maximum Impact Church is, uh, can be a church anywhere. Every church can be a Maximum Impact Church. Tina Rosenberg is the author of a new secular book. I want you to listen to the title of the book. Join the Club, How Peer Pressure Can Transform the World. Now, the question she addresses in her book is, how do you get people to change for the better? How do you motivate people to live healthier lives, to eat right, to exercise, to not drink excessively, to break free of an addiction? In short, how do you get people to grow in a positive direction and what she concluded is that people don't change simply by having the desire to change or by merely getting more information. Almost everyone on the planet 
who smokes knows that smoking is very bad for your health and they want to quit. But many continue to smoke anyway. So how are people persuaded to act in their own long-term self-interest? Not to seek that divorce without cause. To break free of a pornography addiction. To stop spending more money than you make or to control your temper, or to stop cheating. And again, people usually don't change simply by being lectured, nor do most people change by being made to feel guilty, nor do people change simply by getting more information about something that they already know. Here's the bottom line in her book. She argues that people change best in community. People grow best in community. Here's what she says. Few things in life are more important in determining the kind of people we become than the group we hang out with, the group with which we regularly associate. The behaviors of that group determine what is appropriate or what is desirable in our personal value system. Now, we all know about peer pressure, don't we? If you've ever been a teenager, the groups we choose to identify with spontaneously shape the way we think, the way we act. In fact, one book on parenting suggests that second only to our gift of DNA to our children, contributing our genes to our children, the most important thing a parent can do in successfully raising a child is helping that child connect with the right peer group. The author asserts that all the other things you do as a parent, teaching and disciplining and providing and nurturing, they all rank up there, but they can be derailed if your son or daughter regularly associates with the wrong friends. In short, your peer group will bring the best out of you or will suppress the best in you. And student pastors know the impact of a group on an individual teenager's attitudes and behaviors. And listen, what works for teens works for adults. Whether we're talking about losing weight or achieving an education or excelling in job performance, social support and peer pressure have been discovered to be the quickest and best way that people change. Weight Watchers knows this. Alcoholics Anonymous knows this. The leaders of the Point Man Ministry, that's a group that offers support to military veterans of Vietnam, Desert Storm, Afghanistan, trying to help them overcome the potentially destructive effects of post-traumatic stress disorder. They know this. Psychologists know this. Counselors develop support groups for people for everything from grief recovery to eating disorders. And I submit to you this morning that the church and her Holy Spirit-infused agencies and ministries is the most dynamic and effective support group in the world. So what does any of this have to do with being a follower of Christ? What does, any, what does this have to do with our topic this morning about the Maximum Impact Church? Listen, there are few false beliefs 
that have derailed more lives than this one. I don't need the church. More and more people today in America today say that they believe in the basic doctrines of Christianity. That is, they believe that Jesus is God's son, that he died on the cross for their sins, that he's the only savior, that he rose from the dead. The majority of people today believe that God created the world. They know this universe is not some prehistoric cosmic accident. We just learned recently from a camera-equipped space probe that there are another 132 planets out there that we didn't even know existed, and one of them is bigger than Jupiter. Many people believe in the return of Jesus Christ at the end of time. But they'll also say, even though I believe, I don't belong to any church. I really don't see why I should be a part of a church. The Lord and I have an understanding. But friends, listen. If that understanding leaves out active participation in and contribution contribution to the health and growth of the church of Jesus Christ, your salvation is on your terms, not on the Lord's terms. This popular attitude, faith without church, is expressed in an often heard statement. You've heard it, I am spiritual, but I am not religious. You've heard that. And it's created a growing epidemic of what I would call unchurched Christians. Now, typically, these are people who believe, but they're not a part of a church, and they bolster their non-involvement in church with a number of excuses and justifications. My kids are in sports, and travel ball is in full swing. Sunday morning is our only time to relax, to sleep in, to do chores around the house. We've got so much going on that church is just not a huge priority right now. I recently had lunch in a diner where I sat down with the owner and manager and I began to uh, talk with him about, uh, about the Lord and the church and he told me that he gets up every day seven days a week at 4 a.m. and he is in his bed every night at 8 p.m. so he just doesn't have time for church. Now I'm going to put a private detective on him because I don't think seven days a week he's getting up at 4 a.m. and going to bed at 8 p.m. I seriously doubt what he told me. But even if folks have the time for church, sometimes they'll say, well, uh, the church has got hypocrites who wants to hang out with people who talk one way but whose lives do not support what they believe. It always reminds me of the story between the pastor and the pig farmer. The pastor went out to talk to the pig farmer who was not an active Christian, and he sprung that on the pastor. There are hypocrites in the church. That's why I'm not a part of the church. Well, the pastor changed his tactics, and he said, well, do you mind me looking around your pig farm? Will you show me around your pig farm? He said, sure. So he walked him through the pig pens and passed one pen where there was a sow that had just given birth to a, a litter of pigs. And they were all lined up and, and uh, feeding, except for one little runt that was off to the side and left out. And the pastor said, do you ever sell any of your pigs? He said, well, yeah, yeah, sure. He said, I want that one right there, the runt. 
He said, the runt, well, you, what do you want with that one? That, that pig may not even live. He said, no, I, I want that one. He said, well, what are you going to do with that one? The pastor said, well, I'm going to load him up in my car, and I'm going to go around town, I'm going to show this pig to all the people in the town and tell them this is the kind of pigs that you have on your farm. You see, why is it people always pick out the runts in God's litter and they don't pick out the robust, healthy, genuine, full-grown, mature people. In short, a lot of people object to church because the church doesn't meet their standard. The ideal of what they think the church ought to be like. You know, the music is too loud or the music is too soft. Or I don't like the style, or the sermon is too intellectual, or it's not intellectual enough, or I don't like a couple of people who go there, or the children's ministry doesn't meet our standards, or the coffee doesn't taste good, or those people spend too much money on their building, or they don't spend enough money on their building, or there are too many people in that church, it's too big, or there are too few people in that church, it's too small. One of the best responses to these shallow objections to church, because it doesn't meet our standards was written by Dietrich Bonhoeffer in a little book on the church entitled Life Together. Here's what he said. Innumerable times a whole Christian community has broken down because of someone's wish dream. He who loves his dream of a church more than the Christian church itself becomes a destroyer of the church. Wish dreams make a person proud and pretentious. This was written by a man who died in a Nazi concentration camp because of his faith in Christ and his service in the church. You see, the problem with rejecting the church altogether or relegating it to a marginal place in our priorities is that we set ourselves up as proud judges instead of coming alongside the church with an attitude of humility. It's like standing above the church, believing we have the right and authority to critique everything. And in that place, we actually hinder the possibility of real love and real fellowship occurring in the church. So let me respond directly to the question, why is the church indispensable for you and me? Even if you get all the Christian content you need from websites and podcasts and books and TV and radio, <laughs> even if you think faithfully attending worship and getting involved in the deeper life of the church just makes your life more hectic and crazy, I want to go to the account in the Bible that tells about the day the church was born. And I want you to see this morning God's idea. The church is God's idea, God's plan. For you and for me, for all of us. He, he is the inventor of our life change by peer pressure. He is the originator of our perpetual spiritual growth through Christian community. And it all began on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus in the city of Jerusalem. The apostle Peter has just preached the gospel message for the very first time to an assembly of several thousand 3,000 responded and were baptized and became the very first church. And here's what we read about that moment in history. They, the new Christians, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, 
to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe. Many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need every day. They continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. The character of the Maximum Impact Church is revealed in this text. And the first priority is that they were learning together. Did you pick it up? They committed themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, these new Christians were not having some kind of mystical experience which led them to ignore their intellect. On the contrary, they consistently met to hear the apostles teach. And notice, they did not suppose that because they'd received the Holy Spirit, they could dispense with all their human teachers, not at all. They acknowledged that Jesus had called the apostles to be teachers of the church. And the purpose of the signs and wonders that were performed by the apostles in the book of Acts was to authenticate that their message was from God. So how is it possible for us today in the 21st century to submit ourselves and our churches to the teaching authority of the apostles today? Well, first... You've got to realize that there are no apostles alive today. There are no surviving eyewitnesses to the resurrection, and there haven't been for over 2,000 years. And some people may falsely claim the title of apostle, but no one living today for the last 2,000 years has the apostolic authority of Paul or John or Peter or James. But we submit to the apostolic authority by learning from the apostles in the New Testament exclusively. No supplementary catechisms or human writings. So we affirm, first of all, that a living church is a learning church, a church church that is submissive to the teaching authority of the apostles of Jesus who were eyewitnesses to the resurrection. And today, in our churches across the world, its pastors expound Scripture from the pulpit. Its teachers impress biblical truths in Bible classes, in small groups, in vacation Bible school, in camps and conferences. Christian parents teach the Bible to their children at home. And its members read and reflect on the scriptures in order to grow in the Christian faith as we all learn together. The Bible is the word of life. It is the word of truth. It's the word of life in this 21st century, as the darkness of death seems to be encroaching through pandemic, through the threat of war. The Bible is the word of life, and it is the word of truth in a world that's filled with half-truths and propaganda and fake news. The Bible is milk, Scripture says, bread, meat, honey. You could live a long time on that diet, milk. And bread and meat and honey, that's the Word of God. And I submit to you that the finest education that you will have in your life is an education in the Bible, the Word of God. So we're learning together as the church. We're also caring and serving together. Did you notice it said they committed themselves to the fellowship? The Greek word here is koinonia, specifically referring 
to the expression of our fellowship that prompts us to be both compassionate and generous. And mark this down, the most compassionate people on this planet and the most generous people on this planet are the people who wear the name of Jesus Christ. All the believers were together and had everything in common, koinonia, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Now here's the thing. The Holy Spirit unites God's people in affection for each other. You know what I'm talking about. And he gives his people a tender heart for the needy. And this generosity has always characterized the people of God. One thoughtful person observed, when there is a crisis, anywhere there is a crisis, Christians are the first to arrive and they are the last to leave. Have you noticed that? Samaritan's purse is often the first on the scene, and they are the last to leave. Our God is a generous God, and His church should be generous too. He's a big-hearted and open-handed God, and we, His children, should be big-hearted and open-handed too. I have to tell you, I've been blown away recently, uh, our church in Louisville, Kentucky. It's a large church, probably 35 to 38,000 on 14 campuses and literally worldwide as a result of the pandemic, which caused the church to go online. And now there are congregations in England and uh, India and just various places around the country. This year we had a year-end offering previously with a year-end offering. It's been three, three and a half million dollars, a big church. This year, the offering was over $10 million, and it's all for others. The church is debt-free. And I have to tell you, the church I served in southwest Indiana for 10 years, I was blown away by the heart of the people in that church, a church of about 4,000 active members. I remember in 2010, there was an earthquake in Haiti. Do you remember this? Our church people stepped up, gave $170,000 to earthquake victims in Haiti. And then 20,000 items were trucked to storm-ravaged Alabama the next year in 2011. A 28-foot truck packed with supplies for tornado victims in Joplin, Missouri in 2011. Over $60,000 was given to that community of 45,000 to fund their relief efforts. A large deployment of our people went to that community with $40,000 worth of materials and 120 laborers to assist with the cleanup and to roof the houses of 15 families who were underinsured or uninsured and were close to the tornado strike zone. Our men constructed bunk beds and transported them and assembled them on site for American Indian evangelism in South Dakota. Our missions and benevolent giving quadrupled in 10 years from $300,000 a year to $1.2 million a year. And where does it stop? It, it won't stop as long as we maintain ourselves as a caring, servant-spirited church. So far, I've said if you're not in the church, you're not learning all that you should. And if you're not in the church, you're not caring as much as you could. The third priority of the Maximum Impact Church is worshiping together. Here it is. They committed themselves to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And this is surely a reference to 
the Lord's Supper, the communion we'll share in this morning together, probably included a fellowship meal back then. I'm impressed by the early church's worship as they met together, Acts chapter 20, verse 7, on the first day of the week. I'm impressed because their worship was, first of all, both formal and informal. According to Acts 2.46, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. That's the formal worship. And then they broke bread in their homes. That's more informal, isn't it? Older adults often prefer more traditional and more structured worship. Younger people often prefer more spontaneous and casual worship. Well, the early church had both. They had both. And I want to recommend this practice of intergenerational worship. It's a beautiful thing. And you make it a reality by entering into the spirit of preferring one another in love. Not insisting on my size fits all as a worship style. Well, second, the early church had worship that was both joyful and reverent. The Greek word at the end of verse 46 says they worshiped with glad and sincere hearts. And the word for glad is the word for exuberant joy. And we know from Galatians chapter 5.22 that the fruit of the Spirit is joy, uninhibited joy. So our worship should be offered regularly with great joy. But if joy should characterize our worship when we meet together, so should sincere reverence. Luke writes, everyone was filled with awe, Acts 2.43. The sovereign and holy God had visited this planet in his son. So they bowed before him in wonder and humility. So I love it when we gather for worship and we stand and smile and sing and clap together. And I love it that sometimes we wipe tears and bow and we stand in solemn reverence and we pray together. Well, the final priority of a maximum impact church is witnessing together. It's there in the text. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I suppose a million sermons have been preached on Acts 2.42. It gives us a comprehensive account of the church. But on its own, verse 42 presents an unbalanced picture because it may give us the impression that the early church was only interested in studying at the feet of the apostles and caring for its own members and worshiping God. Not so. Verse 47 makes it clear. They were engaged in bringing other people to Jesus Christ in repentance and for immersion into Christ. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And I want you to notice the Lord did not add them to the church without first saving them. Repentance, baptism. And he did not save them without adding them to the church. Salvation and church membership go together. And they still do. And how often did the Lord add to their number those who were being saved daily or day by day? So evangelism is not an occasional activity. It's the intentional, consistent heartbeat of the maximum impact church. And I remember so well, on a Tuesday night in February, when I was 10 years old, how long has that been? 64 years ago. I was sitting in the living room floor as a 10-year-old boy, cross-legged, 
playing with toys in the middle of the floor. There was a knock on our door. And in came a pastor and an elder from the St. Joseph Church of Christ in our little town of St. Joseph, Illinois. And they sat down at the dining room table with my 38-year-old father and my 35-year-old mother. At that time, my parents had never made a profession of faith in Christ. My dad was raised in a hard-drinking, fighting family. He was the youngest of four brothers. His father, my maternal or paternal grandfather, Lee Eidelman, was a section gang foreman for the Illinois Central Railroad. He was big for men that, in that day and time, about six feet two, about 220, and uh, had a reputation in the little town of Tolona, Illinois, maybe a thousand people. They had a tavern in that town. And uh, Friday nights, after payday, my grandfather would go up to the tavern. And after a while, he'd get unruly, and they'd throw him out. And he would go home and get his four sons and come back and, and clear out the tavern. And my dad was raised as the youngest of those four boys in that home. He smoked unfiltered camels and lucky strikes from age 14 up to age 38. And uh, age 38, gave his heart to the Lord, my mother. And they grafted in a new branch on our family tree. And I overheard the gospel being presented to my parents. And I said, I overheard that. I want to become a Christian too. And I was baptized at the same time my 38-year-old father and my 35-year-old mother were. But I often reflect on that night as setting off a chain of events that I could not have comprehended. And as a result of that decision, my grandmother, all three of my dad's brothers eventually gave their lives to Christ. The whole direction, the whole flow of our family was transformed. And there wouldn't be uh, Kyle Eidelman if there hadn't been my father and mother, his grandmother and grandfather, standing still long enough to hear the gospel, to hear about God's love and grace, and to accept it, and to receive it, and to have their lives changed by it. Amen. And then we got plugged into church. And I say plugged in, I mean I had a drug problem. I got drugged Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. <laughs> and, and by being all in in church it just made all the difference in the accelerated growth of my father and mother and me and my family and looking back over these four marks of the maximum impact church from scripture it's clear that they all have to do with the believer's relationships. Did you catch it? Together they were related to the apostles teaching. They were a learning church. Together they were related to each other as a caring and sharing church. Together they were related to God as a worshiping church. Together they were related to the non-Christian world as a witnessing church. And being 
in the community of the church will dramatically influence and impact your life and your destiny and potentially the destinies of a lot of other people. That you may not even live to meet, live long enough to meet. You cannot become, you cannot become who the Lord wants you to become without being rooted and grounded in the fellowship of his church. Timothy Dwight is one of my heroes of days gone by. He was the president of Yale University. Back in the day when the Ivy League schools took the Bible seriously and the Lordship of Christ seriously, and that's not true today. But it used to be true. And Timothy Dwight was the president of Yale University. And he wrote the lyrics to a song about the church. And some of you may recognize this old hymn. Excuse the archaic language, but I think it'll bless you. I can't sing it without crying, so I'm not going to sing it. I'm going to read it. I love thy kingdom, Lord, the place of thine abode. The church, our blessed Redeemer saved with his own precious blood. I love thy church, O God, her walls before thee stand, dear as the apple of thine eye, engraven on thy hand. For her, my tears shall fall. For, for her, my prayers ascend. To her, to the church, my cares and toils be given till toils and cares shall end. Beyond my highest joy, I prize her heavenly ways, her sweet communion, solemn vows, her hymns of love and praise. Sure as thy truth shall last, to Zion shall be given the brightest glories earth can yield and brighter bliss of heaven. Father God, Lord, would you forgive us for the time, for the times that we take the church for granted when we give the church verbally the back of our own hands, when we make the mistakes of being criticizers and complainers instead of contributors. Lord, I pray that one thing will happen here this morning in this assembly as you visit us with your presence, as you have visited us with your presence this morning in our worship. I pray that one thing will happen in each of our heads and hearts, and that is we will deepen our commitment to the church so we can identify with the words of this hymn. For her, for the church, my tears shall fall, my prayers ascend, my cares and toils be given till toils and cares shall end. Because, Lord, we know that you are coming for your people, your children, your family, your church. And we want to be all in. In Jesus' name, amen.
we're going to take an opportunity now to respond to that, but and do it in such a way um, that, again, was initiated in the first church, uh, in a way that we bring we come around the Lord's table, and at partnership, uh, each week we come around the Lord's table to receive the Lord's Supper, to receive communion, and we're going to do that uh, together. Now, if you haven't picked up your communion cups uh, or, or um, have received that, picked that up on the way in, let's, uh, we have a couple of folks that are walking around, uh, Pat and Elva, raise up your hand if you need that right now. But what struck me in that message was that when I saw that I don't need the church, I thought um, for, for a moment that, you know, almost the opposite is true. The church needs you and the church needs me. And I thought about Jesus uh, bringing his disciples together around that Last Supper. And he invited all 12 of them. He didn't tell Judas Iscariot, who was going to, uh, who was going to betray him. He's not, he didn't tell him, I don't need you around the table. He brought him around the table as well. The broken, the hurting, the confused... Uh, his disciples, and even those that he knew would betray him, he brought them around the table. And he asked them to commune with him. He said, the church, and, and, and I need you here. I need you to hear this. I need you to commune together as a family. And it's wonderful to know that he, has, he, he took that ordinance and he passed it forward. And he told his disciples that every time that you come together, what I'm doing for you, what I'm showing you right now, I want you to do that as a, as a family, as, as brothers and then eventually as sisters in Christ as well. To commune together, to enjoy this meal together, to remember me, to remember this moment. And there's something special that happens around food, around a dinner table. It's intimate. It's special. And people are, they, they bring themselves in their most genuine, um, their most plain of self as they sit around the table, completely exposed, without any preconceptions, without any, any fluff. These men came around Jesus' table and he accepted them as they were. And he passed on a covenant, a promise to them a new covenant in his broken body, a new covenant in his blood that then would, that would bound them as a church, as a family from that point on forevermore. And he asked them to take that ordinance and to pass that ordinance on generation after generation after generation. When people come around the table and they they know who Jesus Christ is, they, they honor him as their Lord, then they are welcome around that table. And just as you and I um, are welcome around that table. Because when Jesus took the bread and he says, what has bound us together is my body. What unifies us is my body which was broken for you. What unifies this body in Christ is the blood that he shed for each one of us, one time forever for the remission of all sins. And so we make it a point to eat together, to commune together each week, 
because the church needs us. Jesus needs us to be together. He needs us to encourage one another. He needs us to hit that reset button in our week, every week, and refocus our lives on Christ. And that's why we do this each week. So together we're going to sing a song. But I want this to be a, a private personal time as well. I'll, I'll, we are going to be communing together, but it's a private time as well for us to, to take and receive the Lord's Supper. To remember Christ's sacrifice for each one of us. Remember the lordship of him who brought us together as a family. But also to, to commune with him in spirit as well. And as we sing this song, may it be a time of prayer and reflection. And you are welcome to, in your time through this moment, to, to eat, to partake of the bread and the cup whenever you are ready.